The Hazy Podcast is brought to you by EK the DJ and Michael Reed. Join them each season as they discuss the adventures contained in various audiobooks. This season, they'll be providing reactionary commentary on the So I Got Hazed audiobook by Michael Reed. Chapter 15, Lost and Found. October 27th, Where'd He Go? My blackout can best be described as time travel. I was instantly transported from the back seat of Cassandra's car to my dorm room bed. I woke up in my bed and had no idea how I got there. I had the worst hangover ever and couldn't remember anything after being with John and Cassandra in her car. I asked myself the usual blackout questions. How did I get here? Did someone help me? Did someone undress me? I couldn't remember certain pieces of the night before, and trying to put them back together like a fractured puzzle just hurt my head more. I don't remember most of the scavenger hunt. It is all fuzzy and parts are missing. I'd better find John and get filled in on what happened to us after the event last night, I said to myself. Before I could muster the energy to get myself out of bed, after skipping my 10 a.m. class, my phone rang. A quick glance at my phone screen revealed home was calling. I drifted back to sleep and ignored the call. When I did get up, I went to the bathroom before calling my family back. On the way back to my phone, I decided I would see John first. As I left my room, Paul came back from his class and told me I was destroyed the previous night. I went and knocked on John's door, and Evan answered. Dude, want to come eat breakfast? He laughed, smiling at me. The smell of weed poured out of their dorm room and into the hallway, so I quickly got in their room and closed the door behind me. No thanks, I said to Evan. The thought of breakfast made me want to vomit, again. When I walked into their room, I walked over to John and said, John, wake up. I pulled his covers off of him. What the fuck, Strikes? He answered, still sleeping in a hoodie and jogging shorts. Get up, man. I need you to tell me everything that happened after the event last night. I blacked out. John smiled. Cassandra totally wanted to fuck me last night when we were smoking in the car. You don't remember that? No way, man. She's dating one of the brothers. Out of all the things, like, that's what he wants to tell me first is, Knowles, I blacked out. I need to know what happened last night. I almost got some pussy last night, bro. That's, that's like, what he wants to tell me. Did you expect anything else from him? Dead silence came across the oh, microphone. No. You don't hear me? No, I... But I said, dead silence came across the microphone, as in, I have no reply. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cassandra was not a whore by any means. She was a loyal woman. Dude, she was so drunk, she would have fucked both of us. I guarantee, if you weren't there to cock block me, she would have blown me. John said. Hey man, that's my big sister now. She's not like that, and she's dating a brother, so it wouldn't ever happen. Besides, if she was going to blow anyone, it was going to be me. I laughed. I sat talking to John for a bit, and then there was a stern knock on the door. I figured, oh great, a weed-smelling room, and I'm going to get my third strike. Paul said, hey, it's Knox. So we opened the door. He looked at me and said, hey, fucking hotline. Are you going to answer your phone, or can we put it in the toilet? Yeah, yeah, sorry, bro, I completely forgot. My roommate, Paul Knox, was the best at, like, one-line insults and things, like, little quips. He could call out anybody, like, just take one look over somebody at a party and instantly think of the best insult to, like, make them just want to leave. <laughs> that's, that's a skill. It that is, is an amazing uh, skill. He used to tell me that I sucked at heckling. And, like, when he said that, I was like, yeah, I guess I do. But, like, if you're the baseline for sucking at heckling, I'm really not that bad. <laughs> Fair. I walked back over to my room and answered my phone on the very last ring. It was my family calling again. Yeah? I answered. It was my dad's girlfriend. Have you seen Tony? His parents are up in Radford for parents weekend and they said they can't find him. He's not in his dorm room. He's not answering his phone. They are so worried that they called me to call you because they know you're both friends and pledging a fraternity up there. They're going to call the cops, Michael. She left me speechless. I had blacked out. What was I supposed to say? For all I knew, Tony could be dead somewhere, and I didn't know. I don't know where he is. 
but I will find him and get him to call his parents, okay? I said, trying to calm the situation down. I thought Tony was probably at one of the brothers' houses, or a sweetheart's house. We're in James's room, and he was sleeping off the night we just had. I didn't even know how we got home. I think Cassandra drove us, or John and I snuck back after putting back on our real clothes. I started vaguely piecing together the night, but had no idea how it finished. I could remember that John lost his panties throughout the night, and Tara was mad at him for losing them. Allison had given me a pair that she wanted to have back too. When I brought them back, they were too stretched out, and she said she was just going to throw them in the trash. When I walked back over to John's room again, he was now dressed in jeans and a long sleeve shirt. I looked at John seriously and said, Hey man, we have to go find Tony. This is why, whenever you lend anything to a pledge, you have to expect it's going to be destroyed. Yeah, you can't trust them. These were smart women. They even said that before they lent us the stuff. I don't want to lend you anything nice. It's going to get destroyed. No, it won't. Well, turns out it did. And they should have known. And the reason they wanted it back is because they wanted to see how destroyed it would be. <laughs> oh, you know what? That's a good point. God damn it. He's like a squirrel. You can never find him, John said, high as a kite. No, we have to find him. His parents are on campus looking for him and they said they were going to call the cops if they can't find him. What the fuck is this fucker doing? Fucking up our fucking day, John said. I laughed, and we began our search. It was getting easier for us to accomplish anything as a team, because we were so unified. It wouldn't take long to find Tony. John called James, and I called Cassandra. James didn't answer his phone, but Cassandra did. She said that she hoped I had a great time at Sweetheart Night. She told me to remember to call her if I needed her help, or I wanted to vent. I said I needed her help finding Tony, and she told me that she didn't know where he was. She also mentioned that when I found him, to tell him he was so blacked out the night before that he fell through her neighbor's $200 glass table, and we all had to pay the damages. I told her I wasn't going to pay for shit, and neither was anyone else except for Tony. Even still, if need be, we would try and raise the money for it, because we were all Pledge Brothers. I wondered who had a $200 table at college or a $200 anything that isn't for school, like books, bongs, clothes, or computers. John and I went to James's room to start looking for Tony. So that happened. I remember that. that I was, remember the broken table. That was uh, pretty shitty, because I was blacked out. So I get a call from my dad's girlfriend. She's like, hey, where's Tony? And I have, I have no idea... Tony could have been murdered in front of me, and I don't remember. But I have to make I her remember, feel okay. I remember that, and I remember... Uh, it's very it's very hazy in my mind. Oh, it's all uh, going to come back to you when we press play again. <laughs> it's very hazy in my mind, but I remember being... I remember being around for that. Well, get ready. Buckle in, because now it's all going to come back. This is one of the best memories and one of the best parts of this book. And I have pictures I can show you. Our first guest was the winner. When we knocked on James's door, he answered with the same hungover look that we all had. Come on in, he said. James opened the door and we walked in. He walked to a drawer to get some food for his turtles. He had been watching TV and his small TV was blaring. There lay Tony, dead asleep on James's futon. I texted Cassandra. We found him, Cassandra. Our search party was called off. We had found him right away, but he wouldn't wake up. He was just lying there, snuggled in a little Tony ball. It was the most glorious image that I'll remember from us pledging. Tony was sleeping like a baby in his Tinkerbell shirt and miniskirt. A super tan beach boy covered in markers sucking his thumb on James's tiny futon. James explained to us that Tony came into his room earlier in the morning and had just slept the entire time since. James's roommate, who was now in class, was not pleased. We snapped a few pictures of Tony in his demolished state. He was a hot mess. He had drawings all over his face and neck. His arms were covered in what looked like a novel. John and I shook Tony to try and get him to wake up. John started yelling at him, but it didn't work either. Dude, Tony was jacked. Tony's arms are huge. Like, he's like a little pledge machine. 
Yeah, for as small as he was, like, uh, overall, like, he was definitely pretty cut. He's a monster. I'm just looking at this picture of, like, this guy in a Tinkerbell shirt, and he looks ripped, but maybe it's because he's in a Tinkerbell shirt. <laughs> Poor Tony. Wow. So, uh, I'll hit play again, and it'll rejog your memory a little bit more. All right. We turned his limp arm over to read big capital block letters written on him in black permanent marker. Who are you and what are you doing in my house? Tony was in some serious trouble and his mess was going to need to be cleaned up. His parents looking for him was the first challenge. The rest could be resolved later. Our job as pledges was to maintain composure and we failed. I felt like I failed the worst because if I was blacked out drunk, I could have gotten my third strike. Whenever anything comes up in a job interview that talks about crisis management, they're like, what's a time where you had to solve a very difficult situation? There's like 100,000 frat situations that go through my head, like getting people out of police situations, getting people out of murder charges. Well, not like people committing murder, but almost getting murdered with their mouths because they were so drunk and talking shit to the wrong people. Yeah. Things like that. Uh Saving people from hurting themselves and parties, saving depressed people, saving drunk chicks, walking them home. All these other situations like go through my mind and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to think of a business situation. Well, uh, one time I stopped a shoplifter. <laughs> getting blacked out was not a good idea because my academic career relied on me not getting one more strike. We finally were able to wake up Tony. The first thing I said to him was, Dude, your parents are here, and they're looking for you. I let the words sink in, as his brain was trying to comprehend what was going on in the room around him. I followed up with a question, something easier to get his brain going. What happened last night? Sorry, I apologize. Where I was going with that was that uh, we're just so good at problem solving in these terrible situations. It's like, okay, how can we resolve this Tony situation? We don't have to worry about the table. The table's already broken. We can figure that part out later. We know how much it costs. Tony has drawings all over him, and he's <laughs> drunk, but we finally found him. Checkbox number one. <laughs> Checkbox number two, we must return the Tony to his bedroom so his parents are satisfied. Everything else can be resolved later. Uh, getting in trouble with the frat, I'm sure, is going to happen, but the Tony needs to be back in his room. So that's where we're at right now. Crisis management, step two. Return the Tony to bedroom. A tiny little thought bubble came out of Tony's right ear, and he began to speak in very slurred, hungover words. He still hadn't seen the writing all over himself. Tony's version of Sweetheart Night began like this. He said that he left the event hammered and fell asleep on Epsilon Upsilon's lawn. A random guy saw Tony and tried to convince him that sleeping on someone's lawn in a miniskirt was not a good idea. He invited Tony into his apartment so he wouldn't get hurt or arrested. As soon as Tony walked into the apartment, he fell through a glass table in the living room and miraculously didn't have a scratch on him. He picked up all the shards of glass in front of the stranger and his roommates. Tony didn't say a word after he cleaned up the glass. He told us he walked over to their sofa and fell asleep. It was awesome that the stranger had taken Tony into his house. It was only something I'd ever seen people do while in Radford. It seemed that only a college student would understand wanting to save a drunken stranger, neighbor, or even out-of-towner from an alcohol charge or other dangers. I know a lot of us have let many strangers, neighbors, and out-of-towners sleep over when we were in college. If you did this, God bless you. Imagine being able to say that you did this in the mass. Like, not 10, 20, 30 people, but like over 100 people you let crash. That's, I think, the cool benefit of being in a frat that people don't get to speak on. Like, yeah, do you yeah. know how many parties we've thrown? Yeah, but do you know how many people we've also taken care of? Like strangers that we've just let pass out in our I yeah. lived in the frat house. Me, me as well, just not house. at the same time as you. And like people yeah. throwing up and stuff, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to just kick him out. Like when people are too drunk and you just, you have to either call an ambulance or it's like, yeah, they got to kick it for a little bit. When, pe when people won't wake up is the scary this that's that's the scariest thing when people are so drunk and passed out or blacked out that 
they're incoherent and they won't wake up. Well, that's when crisis management might kicks in and you got to drag them off the property into somebody else's property and then run away. No, I'm just kidding. You got to call an ambulance, right? Wink. Anyway, so like I was saying, uh, yeah, we've taken care of a lot of people. You find a pre-med kid. Yeah. In fluids. Because all they want to do is that shit. They're like, oh, really? I can save this kid? All right. I feel like we're jumping down a rabbit hole I don't want to venture down. And play. <laughs> Tony said that he didn't fully remember how he broke the table or anyone writing anything on him. That was Tony's blackout story. It seems. Also, Tony's blackout story is perfection of truth. Like, I can imagine every little bit of this. He remembers a guy waking him up on a lawn. You're like, okay, I've been there. That probably <laughs> happened. Then, how he describes the guy taking him into his house, you're like, okay, I can also see that. Like, hey, buddy, come on. I don't want you to get in trouble, man. Brings him inside. And then I can also see Tony tripping and falling through a glass table, and everybody being like, oh! And then him being like, I'm okay. And I can see that happening as well. Like, not a fucking scratch on him, because he's like the Hulk, so his skin is made of, like, gorilla muscle fibers. And then I can also see him being like, hey, I'm so, 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 so sorry, because he's so, so sweet, kicking up all the glass off the floor and putting it in their trash can in the kitchen, and then being like, can I still sleep here? And then just being like, boom, gone, like, out. And then that's it. I can see all of those things happening, so I took it at face value. I believe that to be the truth. It seemed like we got hit pretty hard, and James was the only smart one that got away. We let Tony continue speaking. It seemed like he didn't remember anything after memorizing the bourbon bottle's label, huddled around the bucket. He couldn't even remember who his big sister was. When we told him it was Kelsey Coyle, his depression was visible through his drunken disposition. Whose house were you in, Tony? James finally asked him again. We had asked Tony earlier without him responding. I don't know, man, but I think I remember drinking with them before I broke their table. Well, I think they were drinking. I'm pretty sure. I don't know, dude. I am a hurting unit, Tony said, with pain in his voice. He said that he didn't even remember getting back to James's room on campus. His instinct was okay enough to at least guide him to a safe house. Why he couldn't go to the fraternity house was beyond me, but he was probably avoiding any further hazing. A sleeping pledge in a fraternity house is like a stake in a pool full of piranhas. A flash of light hit Tony's eyes, and it was obvious that what I said to him about his parents finally clicked. My parents? After like five minutes, we're having a long discussion, and then the original question I asked him finally clicks. <laughs> He's like, I'm listening now. Parents? Can you call them, Tony? I asked. Fuck, man. They're here for parents weekend. I am so dead, Tony said. Not even thinking about Tony, I said, it's parents weekend? James and John laughed. James said, Do you have any stuff here, Tony? Tony said that he either lost everything he had, or it was still in his dorm room, including his room keys. Unfortunately for Tony, he didn't have any clothes either. Since James and I were both taller, and John was stocky, there would be no perfect fits, but a man in a skirt that doesn't want to be in that skirt will take anything to cover himself up. James gave Tony some older shorts he had, and a tie-dyed t-shirt. That is like, my wisdom cannot be argued with. <laughs> a man in a skirt that does not wish to be in said skirt will take anything to sheathe themselves from skirt. Wow. Tony looked like a homeless hippie. We all walked outside together. Tony used James' phone outside because it didn't work in the dorms. While Tony was on the phone with his parents, my phone rang. It was Krabs. He never called me. Hello? I need to know where Tony is now. His parents are looking for him, and I just got a call from the g goddamn campus because he told them he was pledging a fraternity named Sig H, and now he was missing, Krabs explained. 
I evilly looked at Tony, who had just sunk the mighty ship for all of us. Krabs was like a stammering Yoda. Man. Go now! You must, 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 must. Figure this out. We were going to be in a lot of trouble all over the boards with this one. Tony is beside me. He's on the phone with his parents now. I said, cockley as can be, knowing we were going to have the shit hazed out of us anyways. Well, the fraternity is in some serious trouble because freshmen are not allowed to pledge, as you guys know. So we will get a $500 fine, of which I expect you guys to throw a party to pay for. Expect to get some more calls today from... You see the situational irony in that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys are getting a $500 fine because Tony got busted for pledging while he's a freshman, so I'm going to need no, you to throw a party and pay us back the 500 bucks. So you're going to do something else that might get us another fine. Something much more illegal. I'm going to need you underage kids to throw a party for hundreds of people. How many people do you think would just come into our smallest casual parties throughout the night? 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s? Oh, easily upwards of 50, man. Easily. But I mean different individuals. When we had a, when we had a packed party, I mean, we could fit 30 people just in that front room. I'm saying easily, our parties easily had 50 people. Between scatterlings of people in the upstairs rooms, uh, people on the back porch and patio. But if we made $500 a party, wouldn't we have had to have had at least 100 people come through? No, no, no. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm talking about from the point the party starts to the point the party ends. How many people do you think typically came to the parties? I mean, probably 200, if, that, if that's how you're talking. Yeah, yeah. Because it was like two bucks, like, right? Or like it was free for some girls or... I can't remember. I feel like we played it by ear and it was dependent on what other parties were charging and we were just undercut because America. 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 Some angry sometimes brothers. Go ahead. Sometimes I, didn't charge sometimes I didn't charge covers, we charged cups. Yes. That's what I remember most of the time. But then it's sad when somebody breaks their cup and it's like, well, I'm not going to charge the guy three bucks for another cup unless cups were scarce, which sometimes did happen. And then you're like, oh, man, uh, you're going to have to go wash out a cup and right. we don't have soap. So you're going to have to use hot water and we don't have electricity or well, uh, gas. So you're going to have to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're going to have to use cold water. <laughs> And even sometimes we didn't have electricity, now that I think about it. This will come in a later book, but we got power from people across the street, and we ran an extension cable from their house to our house, and then we used it to light up a shit ton of other extension cables and power bars, and it ran a sound system off of it, and then the cops came, and they were like, do you know that your neighbors are siphoning power off of you? And they're like, yeah, they, we told them they could. And they're like, yeah, okay, well, it's illegal to run an extension cable across the street. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the things you do when people are too cheap to put deposits down. That'll come in another book. Crab said, before hanging up on me. I checked my phone to make sure it wasn't a mistake, but he hung up on me. That cocksucker. Tony, you fucked us all. John and I are going to get high. James, you want to come? I asked. No thanks, man. I'm going to go get some sleep, James said calmly. We were dumbfounded at the way Tony looked in his outfit, with the combination of writing still all over his face. We all parted ways and didn't bother telling Tony he had writing all over his forehead. Tony had only cleaned off his arms. The hilarity of his appearance was the only thing keeping us from killing him, because he had ruined a great event by keeping the punishment going. Even though we were pledges, and the brothers don't need an excuse to haze us, it was better not to give them any fuel. All the sweethearts in the world couldn't save us from Tony's fuck-up. This was the end to Sweetheart Night. It was a great event that I wouldn't ever want to do again. 
I feel like this is why a lot of military guys get into frats and frat guys get into military, because it's the same concept, right? You're only as strong as your weakest link, and when somebody fucks up, everybody fucks up, and there's a lot of internal hazing, criticism, man-building. It's it's the same thing with lots of, like, regimented or institutionalized fraternal or male-centric positions. Sure. You're supposed to have, like, some sort of other insight but i guess we both oh, agree I, because I we're both the same it's, yeah yeah I, was I, I definitely agree it's quite very well put thanks bro on to the next one it's not what you think october 27th it's not what you think i had just finished a class and had to piss like a racehorse i ran back to my room and although I had to piss badly, I still followed the good roommate code. I made a habit of making a lot of noise before walking into the room. I would jingle my keys so that if Paul was fucking a girl, masturbating, or doing anything private, that he'd have time to hide it. When I walked in, I saw Paul Knox with a needle in his leg, and he had his leg tied off. I said, uh, I'll come back, and walked out, locking the door behind me. My initial thought was that he was doing heroin and I didn't want to be in the room when it went down. I hadn't mentioned anything to John, because it wasn't his business. I came back a little later in the night, and the two of us talked about it. Paul told me that what I had seen was him injecting steroids. After he told me that, I remember that I started to attribute all of Paul's great qualities to steroids. I wanted to try steroids, but was too afraid of needles. I also had way too much other shit on my plate to have to worry about one more thing. For Paul, it was awesome. He was great with girls, had a great physique, and the confidence to match. I couldn't wait until I had the chance to juice up, but it would have to be years after pledging. Paul asked me to keep his secret to myself, and I said I would, until the publishing of this book. I'm sorry, Paul. Rip, no comment. What? No comment? I said rest in peace, no comment. Oh, dang. But he's not really rested in peace, dude. I'm just saying that, like, <laughs> I just put the stamp on this one. Oh, rest in peace. No, I got you. October 29th. Dress like morons. LT said that we needed to help do some community service. And that's morons, not Mormons. I told him that I already had to do a bunch for court, and he said this was a different kind. He had Tony and I dress up and go door to door asking for canned goods for the local women's resource center. I was dressed as a G.I. Joe, and all I can remember about Tony's costume was that he had a toilet seat around his neck. We went to a few hundred houses off campus, LT driving us the entire way. It felt like we were trick-or-treating for non-perishable goods. We gathered a lot of cans for the Women's Resource Center. When we dropped them off, the woman working was quite taken back with how Tony and I looked. After we explained it was for Halloween, I asked if their center had any volunteer opportunities because I had a community service requirement for court. So there I am, dressed like a G.I. Joe, and Tony is there with a toilet bowl around his neck, and I'm like, do you have any volunteer opportunities? <laughs> can you as, you, me? as you can tell, I'm willing to do almost anything. I associate with the utmost of people. <laughs> the woman laughed at me. I told her it wasn't for rape or anything, making myself look completely moronic. I apologized after flustering through random words. She asked for my number and said if they needed lawn maintenance that she would give me a call. She said that most women would feel uncomfortable with a man in the resource center. It was more of a sanctuary that battered women went for help, usually those avoiding men. I felt like a fool. Just let the next one play out. <laughs> October 29th, a good place to sleep. Mitch told John and I, because we ratted on him earlier in the month for making us do push-ups in trash, that we had to party with him as a punishment. He brought us to one of his friend's houses on the light side. It was near our chapter house. On the porch of the party, 
Mitch announced to everyone that SIG-H had the best pledges out of any other fraternity on campus. So remember when Mitch poured the trash on us and it cut my knee and we had to tape it? Well, I guess some people had found out about that in the fraternity, so he must have gotten in trouble. And as a retaliation, he took Knowles and I out and made us drink with him all night. But it's not really a haze at the beginning, but it turned out to be a really bad haze. Yeah, so in retrospect... Uh, I know exactly where you're going to go with this. Yes. These guys lost their privileges way later than they should have. Okay, this actually isn't where I thought you were going to go with this. I thought you were going to go with the fact that they did something shitty in the first place, and then without us even saying anything, now they're doing something shitty again because they got in trouble for the first thing. Right, and what I'm saying is, I know where this is going. (laughs) Uh, and, and these guys in retrospect, they should have lost their privileges sooner than they did. You know, like these guys went on through like I, when my, when we pledged, when I pledged, Mitch was not pleasant. I guess I should have had my hazing privileges taken away at some point too. (laughs) We all kind of get a little out of control sometimes, but you know what? Usually that's when you're with another brother anyways, and they kind of like snap you back down to earth. Yeah. Like, hello, this is a human. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget that. Don't forget it's a human. All right. So back to a good place to sleep. We're out with Mitch. We're drinking. He just announced to everybody that SIGH has the best pledges. Then he held up a handle of vodka, cracked the lid, gave it to John and I, and told us to finish it. We pounded back the handle between the two of us. I thought it may be water at first, like on Fox and Hounds night, but it wasn't. I drank as much as I could before passing it to John. He immediately vomited after chugging it. After no time, we had managed to drink the entire handle. We started partying with everyone else, but not before long. We both raced outside to keep puking. The host of the party told Mitch that we had to leave. Mitch took John with him to another party, since John was more composed than I was. He told me to go back to Chippy and Eric's apartment. He said, under no circumstances do you go back to the dorms. Don't go back to the dorms, no matter what, Mike. I said okay, and started walking to Eric and Chippy's apartment. Eric and I just looked this up, and a handle of vodka is 59 one-ounce shots. You might lose a little pouring, so it says 39 one-and-a-half-ounce shots. But that's if you're a messy fucking bartender. That's so much booze. Even at worst case, if you spill some on the bar, it's 50 ounces. And you know when you're pounding that some pours on your face, so we can account for that. So say, like, literally 20 a piece is what we did pretty freaking bad. So he takes Knowles, and let's see what happens to poor old Mike. I figured that some late-night gravity bongs could serve my stomach right. I remember trying to walk to Eric and Chippy's house, but being so intoxicated that my legs stopped working. I was outside the sorority house, behind Doug's house, when I decided to call it quits. There was a parked car on the street, and for whatever reason, I decided to lay down in front of it and go to bed. I woke up in the street, to a group of girls telling me I couldn't sleep there. Then they brought me into their house. I was so drunk that they could have been cutting my organs out and I wouldn't have known. When I woke up in the early morning, I looked at the wall to recognize a decorative Delta Mu kitten. Two blackouts in just a couple days. We're on a roll. I got got Mitch and Kyle mixed up, by the way. Mitch, Mitch was actually pretty cool to me most of my pledging. Yeah, Mitch is fucking amazing. Yeah, he like like there were only I don't really remember him being involved in any of like the harsher stuff. Most of the most of the stuff with him was like about getting pissed drunk. <laughs> I loved um, spending time with Mitch after I got into the fraternity. I spent a lot of my life with him. I was I was looking at the cheat sheet and I was like, "Oh yeah, Mitch and Kyle, I got I I I get a I get some of the names 
mixed. It's Kyle, Kyle and Forrest. Those are the ones that I had. Uh, those those were my tormentors. <laughs> Your tormentors. All right. But, so, have you ever been so drunk where your legs just stop working? Or were you already so blacked out at that point? Like, have you ever remembered your legs just not working anymore? Because no, that I, happened. I I blacked out. Like, there was, there was times when I blacked out. Like, so I don't ever remember losing control of any limbs. There was just a point where I could no longer remember. I was crawling on the sidewalk before I was just like, it's Delta Mew, I'll fall asleep in front of their palace. <laughs> I just fell asleep because, like, they're all palaces, right? Who's going to touch you in front of it? I know there were times when I was in the wheelchair where I was pretty blitz drunk that I maybe thought that my legs weren't working. But, was, uh, <laughs> but oh, that's right. a little different because one of them wasn't working. <laughs> what in this chair? What happened? <laughs> what the heck? This was their sorority's mascot. I knew I was in a safe house and figured that some sorority girls had saved me by taking me in. I fell back asleep. When I woke up again, it was because I was woken up. Three beautiful sorority girls were staring down at me. They told me that I needed to wake up if I wanted to get to Pledge Wars. I asked what happened, and they told me I fell asleep outside their house. They took me in because I told them I was a Sig Age Pledge, and I was lost. They didn't want me to get arrested, so they let me sleep in their basement. I didn't know anything about a Pledge Wars competition. My best negotiation skills have always come out when I'm completely wasted, and I wish that I know what I say because... I need to be able to harness that ability when I'm sober. But the situations that I've managed to either get myself in and get myself out immediately or just get myself out, period, situations to which I did not cause, uh, I need to be able to grasp that ability and pass it off to others because it is like 100% confidence and I think I could walk into CIA headquarters and convince them that I'm an agent. It's true because I say it's true. Yes, it's absolutely <laughs> true. How dare thee defy me? And, like, I'll pull shit out of my brain that, like, I can only unlock when I'm drunk. Like, I don't know, biochem stuff that you learned when you were drunk. I I really don't know what's hidden in there. It's Pandora's box when I start drinking. <laughs> but then the inverse happens and bad things occur. Things always occur. They do. So I race to campus. When I got there, Forrest Grimes was there. He asked me what I was doing there and told me Sig H was not participating because all of the pledges were illegal. He told me to go back to the chapter house and get it ready for our Halloween party. Before I left, he said that I was in deep shit for talking crap to him while I was drunk the night before. So I was blacked out the night before and I must have been talking shit to Forrest. Apparently. That was so, not a good idea. This is just a chain of events that keeps stringing off of each other. So now a brother feeds me a handle of vodka, and while I'm drinking and drunk out of my mind, I say some shit to somebody that I sh probably shouldn't have said, but I was severely under the influence, and I am Pac-Man when I fucking drink, so I just couldn't stop talking. I am Pac-Man when I'm not drinking. That's why I wrote a 12-hour audiobook. October 30th, Halloween Party. Our pledge class threw an amazing Halloween party at the Sigage Chapter House. By Halloween, we had raised enough money from our previous parties to set up multiple beer kegs, liquor kegs, and a shooter bar. Our parties were known around campus, which made our tiny pledge class of four feel proud. For this party, I was told I had to remain sober at the liquor keg. My job was to fill up everyone's cups. I had to dress in a giant penis costume and it came with shoes that looked like giant balls. The costume itself was a giant tan shaft, and the head was a tip. That wasn't enough, though. The brothers poured mayo all over the top of the costume. The brothers essentially destroyed what is probably a three or four hundred dollar penis costume. That thing was like a professional one. It was one. hilarious. They said that whenever anyone came up to the keg, I had to say, Happy Halloween! I'm a penis with mayo for cream. All of our costumes, except John's costume, had their downfalls. 
Tonya to dress as a cartoon elephant, and all night, drunk people would tug on his giant ears, causing his head to jerk around. James had to dress as a call girl, and he had a weird creep come up to him and ask if he wanted to fuck. Zeke and Mitch picked out John's costume. Because John was in the Golden family, he got to wear the Superman costume. It was pretty much the best costume a pledge can wear. He had fake muscles and a cape, and he looked much cooler than the rest of us. Fake muscles in college, in any suit, in a party, like, instantly drunk girls would be like, oh, look at how buff he is. Like, it's just what happens. There's no way around it. I don't care about sexism, anything like that. Even guys would be like, look at how jacked that guy is in his Superman costume. I was planning on being the sober penis until John kept coming by and telling me how drunk he was. He told me that I should just drink when people aren't looking. It wasn't a terrible idea, so I listened. The liquor keg was strong, because before I knew it, I was a drunken mess. And all of us are supposed to be sober, so now you can tell that Knowles is drunk because he's thrown up on a Superman costume. And you can tell that Dumbo's drunk because his ears are tugged everywhere and he doesn't give a fuck anymore. And you can tell the call girl is drunk because he is not having a good time dressed as a call girl. It didn't take long for the brothers to notice I was drunk, so they swapped in Tony, the little elephant, to relieve me of my liquor keg post. I was temporarily freed by the brothers to roam around and enjoy the party. The liquor started kicking in hard, and my memory started to get hazy. From what I remembered, I found myself in the kitchen. John had just come up to me to tell me he had made out with Tara after he'd puked. I knew he was being truthful at least about the puking part, because his Superman costume had a bib-like puke stain on it. I know this is vile, and we don't do it anymore, obviously, because we're in our 30s and married or whatnot, but Knowles and I used to love throwing up and then making out with girls, and they would never know. I know that's so fucking disgusting. I don't know why we liked doing that, but that's like the mo- one of the most foul things you'll ever hear about me. If you guys are listening to this, it'll be locked in the history books forever. I'm a piece of shit. Uh, now every, girl that ever, every girl that ever made out with you that might listen to this, no no like, woman I that, wonder if you did that no woman that I've ever made out with will ever listen to this <laughs> bullshit shenanigan show <laughs> it'll be some kid that listens to it and be like gross no, no I want to try that if anything all the people that listen to this in the future will be like I don't want to kiss him because maybe he's thrown up and he's just not going to tell me about it you just started a new Tide Pod challenge. It's the puke kiss challenge. It's the puke kiss challenge. It's the PKs. Who wants to get PK'd today? Ugh. Puke kiss. I told him that was awesome because he'd wanted to get with Tara all semester. After he told me that, I somehow achieved the impossible. I made out with Hannah, the Zeta Alpha sister that had signed our shirts on Sweetheart Night. Hannah was beautiful with long black hair, and she was out of my league. She was also Tremperera's girlfriend, and now wife, but he wasn't at the party. At the time, I didn't know she was dating Trent. She was embracing me while I was wearing my penis costume, which must have looked funny. Eventually, things started getting so heated between Hannah and I that she asked if I wanted to come back to her apartment. Of course I said yes. After that, I didn't let go of her. It was like catching the perfect fish. You know what I'm going through, right? I'm like a young, horny kid. This girl's like, hey, do you want to come back to my place? And I'm like, yeah, but she still wants to go around the party. So I'm like, all right, well, fucking hooks her in. I don't want you to fucking go go up to some other dude and be like, I lost the guy that I was with. Do you want to come instead? Do you want to be the lucky guy to get herpes? (laughs) I pulled up my ball shoes and dragged Hannah around the house while I looked for my pledge brothers. I told them I was leaving and wouldn't be back. As I was walking out the back door, Forrest grabbed my shoulder and asked, Where do you think you're going? To fuck, bro, where do you think? You aren't leaving, and you aren't leaving with her. I looked at Hannah and mouthed, I'm sorry, to her. She said she wanted to go to sleep anyways, and she would catch up with me some other time. That was it. My Halloween was ruined. When I went back over to my liquor keg station, Poor Tony Touch was completely hammered. 
I'm so happy that I wrote this book and did this audiobook. I'm just thinking about this right now. Like, and just the fact that I've kept journals makes this so amazing because like these stories are so detailed in a way that like a kid, I was a kid and that's the way that I thought at the time. I was just so angry. I was like, oh man, you just severely cock blocked me. Not like I'm going to make this girl have a terrible relationship with her boyfriend because she's cheating or whatever. I'm just thinking about myself. I took over the station for him and sent him back into the party to enjoy himself. Even though I was majorly cock-blocked, our Halloween party turned out to be a wild success. We had made a lot of profit for our next party, and I was happy with how things had worked out for us. But still sort of bummed that I didn't get any action, but again, that's all I could ever think about, so... Yeah, they, they like to say, oh, if you don't get laid while you're pledging, you did something wrong. Yeah, well... You guys constantly cock-blocked us while we were pledging. <laughs> exactly. Do you want to know who I cock-blocked while they were pledging? Nobody. Want to know why? Because I was like, all right, if this guy gets ass, he'll want to keep pledging. Not only that, but, like, just guy code. Why am I going to cock-block? Yeah. I'll real. snag. I'll snag it. If I want it, I'll take it. But those <laughs> days are also over. Up. Yeah. I'll steal your bitch, man. You better watch out. Mr. Steal Your Girl. Mr. Steal Your Girl. I'll swoop in like an eagle and pull that worm right out of your little fish mouth. October 31st. Tony's dorm heifer. The next day, when we all met up to clean the house, Tony had a story to tell. Dudes, you have to listen to what happened to me last night. We all stopped cleaning and hung out in the bar room. So, please remember that Tony was wearing a Dumbo costume. Elephant, to be specific, so I don't get sued by Disney. It looks like a Disney-like character. A Disney-esque costume. In parody. Perfect. All okay. boxes checked. With wild hangovers thumping in our heads, we listen to Tony's story. Every dorm has one. One if you're lucky. You know, the dorm heifer. A huge bloated whale that any sane and sober man would fear contact of. A woman that could take a man's life, reputation, time, and food. I swear to God, we were so drunk. The way that Tony told the story, it was almost like he was starting the story like this. My name is Ishmael. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. He was on a conquest. Yes. Last night when I came back to the dorms, I saw a girl jiggling her hands against a vending machine. I asked her what happened, and she told me that the machine had stolen her Reese's Pieces. Tony sweetly offered her 75 cents to free her heart-congesting goodness from the clutches of the vending machine. That's all it took. They struck up a conversation, and it turned out Tony was the next snack on the menu. She took him back to her room and showed him elephant-style why the dorm heifer should be respected as a dangerous animal. We couldn't stop laughing. I said, I guess there wasn't a Forrest Grimes in the dorms to stop you from taking her home. Poor Tony. He was a victim of his own genuine sweetness. And the irony of that is that sweetness is what caused the woman to like him in the first yeah. place. Yeah. I see what you did there. <laughs> October 31st. Maybe Hell Week? It all started out at our regularly scheduled Sunday pledge meeting at the end of October. The meeting began with LT announcing that the pledges would be staying at the fraternity house for a week starting on Wednesday, November 3rd of the upcoming week. He said it could be Hell Week, or it may not be, but we'd never know. After class, we were to go to the house. At nighttime, we were to sleep in the house. The only other time we'd be able to leave the house is if we were with a brother. It'd be a great week for pledge interviews. We were to pack enough clothes that would last us a full week. LT suggested that we could hide our clothes in his house, and if we wanted to change, we had to call him. If he didn't answer or his room was locked, we were screwed. In essence, we probably didn't want to hide clothes at LT's house, just in the event we couldn't get to them. We were to give LT our class schedules before Wednesday of the event, even though we had given them to him earlier in the semester. We were to stay in the fraternity house at all times when not in class. We were to sleep in the house 
and whenever we went anywhere, we had to sign in and out on a sheet that was at the top of the basement stairs. We figured we were going to be getting hazed a lot more than usual living in the house. We might be able to get away with a few white lies here and there to one or two of the brothers, but the fraternity as a collective seemed to always find out if someone was a liar, so it wasn't worth it. We were screwed. As I packed my little travel bag, I stopped myself. What was I thinking? Was this hell week? Why am I packing early? Was this another mindfuck? The reality kicked in that even though there wasn't a lot of the semester to go, it couldn't be hell week. We hadn't had nib night or a 911 challenge yet. I had strategically asked brothers how long pledging lasted, and they all had said a semester. I figured out that it was a fake hell week, and packing shit beforehand out of excitement was pointless. It wasn't smart bringing anything to the fraternity house that would get destroyed either. I packed boxers, socks, and a spare shirt only, and left the bag in my closet so it was ready to go. Even though the brothers said we weren't allowed back in our dorm all week, they couldn't stop that from happening. I was such a smart pledge. Yeah, you had a lot of stuff figured out. We were very sneaky. It was all just a matter of time before we were in the fraternity. Our pledge class knew that it wasn't going to be hell week, but there wasn't anything the brothers could do to make us quit at that point. Knowing that it wasn't hell week, we went about the whole process with a lot of cockiness and brash arrogance of the rules we were supposed to be following. I'd say it worked out for the best. I'll let you guys be the judge as we continue to read the rest of the